I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blimke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. By the way, we now have a merchandise shop on the website. So if you want your podcast swag, and you know you do, go to our website and click on the store tab. Teresa McBain is a former Methodist pastor and the first female member of the clergy, clergy Project to publicly come out as a non-believer. She did that at the 2012 American Atheist Convention, so go big or go home. She's now the director of the Hotline Project, which we will talk about shortly. Teresa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm, I'm so happy to be here with you guys. Absolutely. So for people who are not familiar with you, can you tell us your story about uh, you used to be a pastor? Like, that that's for real. You did that as a career and then you stopped believing, which is kind of, I know this is one of those, it, we could talk an hour just about that, but in a nutshell, what happened? Um, yeah, definitely. We could talk an hour because it's, as with any person probably who's come out of religion, it's a, a process. And uh, I was serving as a pastor, thrilled with it, had always wanted to to be a pastor you know, to serve people to serve god and wasn't even aware that anything was happening inside my mind um i've always been a, a curious type of person and always wanted to learn that that's just still one of my passions and that's i guess really what started it is just always trying to learn never taking anybody's word for it wanting to find the answer for myself I always wanted to verify what, if I heard Billy Graham something say something, I had to go and find out exactly why he said that. Um, and what I thought was my faith maturing because I was learning and, and, you know, going deeper and just getting more knowledge. It actually was stripping away the faith that I had because, you know, the further you go, the more you read, the more you study, the more you dig, you, you, things just start falling away because it you can't justify it. You can't match it up between contradictions and just, you know, historical uh, accounts and, and then science and all the things that add together. And I guess about probably wasn't until maybe 2009 or 2010 that I actually became aware that something was happening. Um, which I thought it was, as the old mystics used to say, a dark night of the soul. And so um, I prayed intensely and uh, because I felt, I, I don't know, I blamed on everything. I just, you know, I backslid, although I knew there wasn't any kind of sin in my life or I was burned out, which that wasn't the case either. It, what was happening was that the faith was just eroding and, by 2011, I was fully aware that I was a, a Christian agnostic, um, which quickly led to being just an agnostic, <clears throat> which is when I actually got in touch with Dan Barker, found out about the clergy project, um, realized that that I had to do something that I couldn't continue to be a pastor the way that I was without without having my beliefs, you know, the strong faith. Um, and so I started, uh, I guess it was probably September of 2011, and I started trying to find a job. 
trying to find some other kind of employment, which is difficult if you're a pastor. You apply for a job, and somebody asks you and says, oh, well, why are you leaving the church? Well, you're in a quandary, <laughs> no matter where you live, but especially in the South. <laughs> uh, where in the South uh, were you? In Florida, in Tallahassee, North Florida. Um, and if you tell them that you're burned out, that's really not a good thing to say at a job interview. <laughs> um, if you tell them, because I don't believe any of it anymore, <laughs> that's not a good thing to say. So needless to say, that was it was kind of a fruitless thing. But um, I had a friend that I had, lives in Tallahassee that I had met <clears throat> through the Tallahassee Atheists um, I was kind of sneaking away to their groups secretly. And um, he and his wife said, the reason that Ali's coming up, you've got to go. We're going to send you up there. <laughs> and I went I went to D.C. to the Reason Rally and then the convention following it. It was a crazy set of circumstances. And uh, I wound up on the stage at American Atheists to talk about the clergy project and, and my own life and, of course, You'll remember, wasn't using my real name. I was right. <laughs> I was. It was actually my middle name, but people didn't know that. They just knew that I wasn't out and uh, got up on that stage and I came out in front of, as they say, God and everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the ovation was. I mean, it's cliche, but it was a thunderous ovation because yeah. they, a lot of people were really proud of you for coming out, and not just coming out, but coming out so publicly. Yeah. I mean, that's the way yeah. to do it. <laughs> yeah, it was it was quite I mean, I'll never forget it. Um I had not had any knowing interaction with with people who are non-believers, but definitely not anything that was kind of an organized uh convention or conference or movement. And you know, like I said, I'd I hung out with four people from the Tallahassee atheists uh in this gentleman's home but that's it i didn't know i had no idea what it was like or what people were like or you know talk about the um ignorance uh of somebody who's lived in a christian bubble for their entire life to then wind up at the reason rally right <laughs> and and the american atheist convention but yeah i was completely shocked and surprised at the response let me back up for a second. When you started having serious doubts about your faith, what happened to your sermons at the time? Because you were still preaching uh, mm -hmm. well into all of this. So what happened to those sermons? Did you, What did you change? Um, you know, I probably, well, I know they, I wouldn't say they got better, but they were definitely more, a Bible pact. I was always kind of a, a a pastor that wanted people to walk away with something practical that they felt like they could accomplish during the week. You know, just one thing they could hold on to. Um, I'd, I'd grown up with the Hellfire and Brimstone independent fundamentalist Baptist stuff, and I never wanted to be a pastor like that. Um, and if any of you have ever heard me give a talk, look up the Apostacon from this past year, and you'll hear basically the kind of sermons I would give. Uh, um, but I found that I was packing more into it because, you know, that's September 2011. 
<clears throat> so November's coming, which is Thanksgiving. And then I was a Methodist. So December is Advent, then Candlelight Christmas Eve, then Christmas, then New Year's rolls around. And before you know it, it's Ash Wednesday and Lent and Holy Week. So that's some serious preaching time for <laughs> pastors, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I, I was determined that I would do my job because even though I didn't believe I was still hired to do a job and that's what I did. You had an um, obligation to the congregation. Mm-hmm, I did. And so the things that they were accustomed to hearing, the theology that they believed, the doctrine that they believed, that's, those are the things that I said. <clears throat> and I guess I just had a dissociated, you know, um, <laughs> I did a split personality thing, uh, and the the pastor walked in the door and did her job, and then the pastor walked out the door, and I was left. Um, <laughs> and obviously, there's a lot of people who have been in your shoes who have done the exact mm-hmm. same thing. They play the role because this is kind of all they know, and like you said, people are expecting it from them. And I'm sure you still want to work out in your own head like, what is it exactly that I believe now? Or don't believe. Yeah, yeah or don't yeah. believe, and that's a tough thing. So let's... Uh... Yeah, and... Oh, go ahead. But, well, I mean, it, it was so difficult for me. I I can't remember, you know, like to say exactly it was one month before, two months before, three months before. Um, but there were times close to when I went up to, to D.C., where I would try to convince myself that this wasn't happening to me. Even after I had decided and even joined the clergy project and said, you know, I, I'm an atheist, I don't believe this anymore. But that that part of religious mind, I guess you would call it, doesn't want to believe that that's happening. You know, I don't know if that makes any sense. I, I have to imagine that someone else has felt this way. Besides me, oh, I'm <laughs> or maybe I'm have. just the odd one. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, it was it was it was horrible. Um, but once I was out and it was open, it was in the public. That just all went away. Um, and so you kind of turned to you're now helping people who are in similar pos- uh, positions as you were. So tell us about uh, the Hotline Project. Uh, the Hotline Project is uh, it's an amazing project. And yeah, you're exactly right. I am doing the very thing that I have always done and wanted to do, which is helping people who are are in a a difficult situation. Um, The hotline is a project that's recovering from religion, which I'm sure most people who are listening are aware of of RFR. It's a special hotline. It's a a call center with a toll-free number that people can call who are struggling with issues of faith. They may be an out and open atheist and they're dealing with the aftermath of coming out or the family, or we've had people call who've had a loved one die and they're not quite sure how an atheist grieves, um, you know, parenting beyond belief, you name it. We've probably heard it from a caller. We have people who call her closeted and that has its own unique set of of circumstances. Um, you know, I think about my own self when I was struggling and closeted. What I would have, I would have given almost anything to 
have been able to pick up the phone and talk to someone that was compassionate. Um, but we also have a lot of people who call who are struggling with their, their faith. They may be early on and they've decided that they can't stand the preaching on hell anymore, but they don't have anybody to talk to. And they take a risk and call us. And then maybe they see something on Facebook that says, we're kind and we're compassionate and we're not going to judge you. Mm-hmm. But that's a little hard to believe sometimes, you know. Um, but they call and they find out that's actually true. Or maybe they're at some other stage in their doubt. We give them a safe place to talk. We try to help them process what's going on inside their mind, connect them with other groups, uh, connect them with organizations like the Secular Therapist Project, and then give them resources um, without trying to influence them one way or the other. And let me reiterate that point. This, when they call you and say they have doubts, the people on the mm-hmm. other end, they're not trying to like convert them to atheism. No, not at all. We, we don't operate the way faith-based phone lines operate. Our goal isn't to convert somebody. That's a personal thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and if I'm able to convert you, Hemet, let's say mm-hmm. you're on the call and you're doubting and you can talk to me and I can convert you, all I've done is made myself a little disciple, a cult of personality. And I'm not interested in that, nor are any of my, my call agents. We want to give a person the tools that, that they need so that they can work through it. They can think through it. They can do the hard work because it is hard work and come to their own conclusions. And just really quickly, what's the what's the number for the Hotline Project? Let's just get uh, that out of the way. It's eight four four. I doubt it. I d o u b t i t. Cool. What sort of uh, callers have you had? Like you said, there are some people who are having doubts, who are struggling and stuff. Um, Have you personally talked to someone where you're like, I've been in your shoes? Is it easy for you to say that, you know, when you're talking to someone? Um, There have been people that have called, and and I have talked to people who are in similar situations. One of the the policies that we have is that we only reveal our first name to the caller. Um, And there's a few reasons for it. And we don't share our own personal belief system. or we've been there or, or anything like that because we're so committed to not leading a person, not pushing them toward atheism or agnosticism or whatever, whatever the call agent happens to believe, that we don't want to influence them by sharing our own, you know, in, inserting our own path and journey into it. Um, we want everything to be about the person who's calling and helping them to figure out their story. Um, And it really does. It works. I mean, some folks may be sitting here and listening and and saying, well, why can't you share your story? But if you you step back a minute and you think about it, and you think about it logically without any emotion in it, it makes sense. Because psychologically, if I start to, to identify with somebody in that way and confirm what their 
you know, that they're leaning this direction, I could inadvertently lead them in a direction. And we don't want to do that. And this is something a lot of religious people know very well, and that's why they mm-hmm. do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we don't, we don't want to do that. And, and we don't. Um, our agents, we train them very well. One, there, there's three sections, uh, three sessions of training that a, a person has to go through to work uh, as an agent with a hotline. And the first one, that's all it's about. It's all about how to communicate, how to listen actively, to focus, to make everything that that an agent's doing in that two-hour call shift about the caller to take ourselves out of it as much as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we we work on being self-aware, realizing the the spots that are going to trigger a person. You know, I have triggers. Um... Everybody has a trigger. Things where we have biases or strong opinions that might influence what we're hearing. Uh, so, you know, <clears throat> we do a lot of work. And I have to say that the people that are that I work with at the hotline, all the agents, the, the staff people, the other volunteers, they're amazing. They're so committed to what we're about and what the mission is of the hotline project. It's incredible. I have, I have some call agents that are required to work two, two-hour shifts a month. Do you know I have some that are probably putting in at least 30 hours a month? Oh, wow. Yeah. They're, they believe in it so much. And they just they get on those phones and they talk to people. And, you know, as a, as a director, I can review the recordings. We record all the calls. Of course, we take... We have call reports and notes that we keep um, as a part of the the platform that we use for a call center. Um, and just listening to them sometimes, it's just powerful. I wish I could let you listen to them. Of course, I can't. That's yeah. uh, breaking confidentiality big time. But it's just amazing. Yeah. Uh, when you... Real stuff. It's real help. We're not praying with somebody. Yeah. We're not promising them a hereafter. You know, we're not even lying to them. Mm-hmm. If they're grieving over a loved one, yeah, we are saying, wow, that's really tough. And there's no easy answer. But we can help you even though it's going to be really difficult, you know? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, if I recall correctly, at um, the American Atheist Conference last year, um you spoke and did you did you read a transcript of one of the calls? It, Am I remembering yeah, that correctly? I, I read a um, sanitized version. Yeah. Um, which was a uh, I think there's a few that have been sanitized that I've used in a couple of talks. I can't remember which one that was. I, f- I think it was probably one of the younger callers. Yeah, it was a younger person. Um, <laughs> For some reason, I want to say they're Mormon, but I don't know if I'm misremembering that. But it was really like you read it, and it wasn't even it wasn't even like the actual call recording. It was just her reading it. I went, and I'm so grateful I was there for it because I wasn't there for a lot of the talks because I was doing this podcast. So grateful mm-hmm. I was there to hear it because it would like ever there wasn't a dry eye in the place. It was so moving and so sad, and this kid calling in about felt like they lost mm-hmm. their faith and they thought they were gonna. They thought they were going to get thrown out of the house, and they were 
12 or 13 and it was just yeah heart-wrenching mm-hmm. heart-wrenching that like it really reminded me personally like I think I know I think we all can get a little bit jaded about like what we're doing in the atheist movement and like but you see things like this and you see the real harm that that religious belief does to to a mm-hmm. person and it was ugh, it was so moving and touching and heart-wrenching absolutely yeah and you know 48 percent of the calls that we receive are from people under 25 just to give a lot people... of them are are even under that eighteen. I think it's like twenty six percent are between the ages of twelve and eighteen. That's a lot of young people. That is just to give people an idea. Can you? I don't know if these numbers are public or not, but can you tell us how many agents there are working? How many calls you're getting? Um, yeah, I have. <sighs> so that's a good question. <laughs> or just a ballpark of those. I have a, a, around, I think I have about 125 call agents. Mm-hmm. I have uh, staff. There are, I just added a couple of people. So there's about 15 people who are, are volunteer staff. And then I have a few other people who work like tech support and other, other things. Um, and these call are, agents are all volunteers who just want to help out for a couple yeah. of hours at a time or something. Yeah, could our if our yeah, listeners we're, wanted we're, to get involved, we're could all they? volunteers. Even myself, um, mm-hmm. I'm not paid um, <clears throat> at this time. So, um, if um, Teresa, if our uh, listeners wanted to help out, could they volunteer for you, or is there what's the process absolutely. like? Absolutely, yeah, and we're actually in a big recruiting push for volunteers because there is something brand new that's happening at the hotline. And that is, um, on February 27th, we have a one year anniversary and we've decided the best way to celebrate is to launch a live chat hotline. So this is online chatting with someone doing the same sort of thing. Yes, it is all online. A person can connect either on their computer, their phone, their tablet, anything that can connect to the internet, they can get on and chat with a trained hotline chat agent. And uh, we're training a couple times a week now new people who want to come on and, and, and work chat. Of course, if they want to train for the calls, they can do both. But uh, this is this is something that is really, really exciting for me because I know myself personally, if I have to talk to AT&T about my phone bill, <laughs> I'm going to try to use the chat first. Yeah. Oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> um, and it's just more natural the for the people who, so are, easy. who are younger yeah. that you're saying are yeah. calling anyway. They probably prefer that too. I mean, yeah. parents can't hear if you're in your bedroom or something right. if you're chatting. Absolutely. And that's been a big problem with some of our younger callers, even some, some people who – are not necessarily younger. We have a lot of situations where people will be talking and they might start talking really soft and then all of a sudden the line goes dead. Oh yeah. my God. Because <clears throat> that's a spouse or some kids or something? Yeah, spouse may come in, kids, uh, who knows what the situation is. But if you're on your computer and you're in a, a live chat with somebody, you don't have to find space to make a phone call. Mm-hmm. And for... For younger people, especially, yeah. I think this is going to just be revolutionary. 
for the yeah, chat yeah. function and for the phone calls, is this 24 seven or is this certain other certain times when neither of these is happening? Um, the chat we're, we're going to launch 24 seven. Um, the phone lines, we're still on the same hours, which are going to be the, there'll be weeknights from 4 PM to midnight. And then Saturday and Sunday we'll have a 24 hour coverage which seems to work pretty well that if looking back over the last year, our call volume pretty much tracks with that. Um, and, and actually Wednesday is really Wednesday through Sunday is when we see the most of our calls with Sunday being the highest number. Like Sunday um, morning when they should be in church, they're giving you guys a call. Or I just came back. Yeah. Yeah. Really. It's like from 10 to three, 10 to four on Sunday is when we get the most calls for the whole week. Uh, Do you know how people are finding, how are people finding this number? Are they like Googling, who do I talk to if I have doubts? Or Mm -hmm. where are they hearing about the Hotline Project? Yeah, we'll get people who will say they they Googled, um, you know, who can I talk to? People have seen it on uh, the internet, either Recovering from Religion website or the Hotline Project website. The RFR groups that are out you know, around the United States and other places, they'll talk about it um, after conferences and in any kind of media or publicity, people will hear about it and we'll get a, a spike. Mm-hmm. Um, we've not done any really dedicated advertising in quite a, a well, several months um, because we had a tragedy, not a tragedy, but a crisis, I guess you'd say. At the beginning of August, Our uh, we had a physical server that was what we used, and it decided to die. Oh, no. A tragic death, and, and <laughs> wound up. We were offline, I guess, probably eight weeks. But um, during that time, we had a couple new volunteers come in who work with cloud-based VoIP systems, and that's where we are now. We have a, a cloud-based system service out of uh, Colorado. works beautifully. We've not had a not a minute's downtime since then, but you know, we lost some people over that period of time, which I you know, I can understand that. So you gotta replenish but, uh, the volunteer staff and sure. all that stuff, train them up again. Yeah, so we've we've replenished it, we've gotten it all together, we've got the chat ready, and so with the the launch of the new chat hotline, that's when, you know, recovering from religion, their marketing a person is putting a plan together to really push it out there mm-hmm. and get the word out because we yeah, we'll have chat people, chat agents online, twenty four hours a day. That's great, uh, Teresa. We're going to be wrapping up in just just a second. I just had one more question. Um, looking back at your own journey from from faith to atheism, how would have uh, the hotline changed your personal journey? Do you think it would have made it easier, quicker? Yeah, I think it would have probably made it easier, definitely. Quicker quicker is hard to say, um, but easier is definitely would have been a huge benefit because one of the things that I know for me personally when I was in the midst of that is I was trapped inside my own mind, and there was so much weight and so much pressure on just processing the information, dealing with the guilt for that I would experience because, oh my goodness, you know, why are you thinking that? And then 
just the feeling of being trapped, all of that swirling around together in my mind. And it, it makes it really hard for a person to process and put things together and to see through, you know, it's like looking at a dense fog and you just can't see anything in front of you. And I think anyone who's been through that process where you start to doubt all that religion stuff that you grew up with, yeah, one of the mm-hmm. biggest things you can do is just bounce those ideas off of somebody. And yeah. if you mm-hmm. live in certain parts of the country, you can't. Yeah, who are you going to do that with? Yeah. I mean, maybe even exactly. online, even online, I could find a website that might convince me like this makes sense. But that human interaction is huge. And I didn't have that when I like became an atheist. Yeah. And this idea of yeah. just a hotline project, I can talk to someone via chat or uh, on the phone. And even with the chat, these are trained people, not idiots who are going to say something stupid. Yeah. That's a huge <laughs> exactly. deal. Um, so, Teresa, yeah. we'll make sure there's uh, a link to the phone number, a link to people uh, for people if they're interested in becoming a volunteer for either the chat or the phone line. Uh, thank you so much for the work you're doing with the Hotline Project and Recovering from Religion. And, uh, yeah, if anyone is listening who wants to talk to somebody about religion, they're having doubts, whatever, uh, call this number. It's 844-I-DOUBT-IT, and we'll have a link to the chat function in the show notes so you could talk to someone uh, via chat if that's easier for you. Thanks again, Teresa, for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you, Hammett. Thanks. Good night. Good night. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois, and the music was written and performed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. We hope you'll join us next time.